Sunday morning studying the book of Revelation together as we make our way there. Again, just a reminder that on Sunday night we go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and uh, we'll be studying in John's Gospel, chapter 6 tonight. Uh, Each of you are invited. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and also there was no more sea. And then I, John, that is the Apostle John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, that is to John, write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Let's pray together. Father, we recognize and, and certainly as those that know you and are familiar on whatever level with this Bible, that there's nothing like it in all of the world. And Lord, we come to it once again with a sense of privilege, a sense of, of deep gratitude that we're able to build our lives and our eternities on something that's unshakable, that is true, and uh, that will never fail us, Lord. What a wonderful foundation it is. We pray that you'd fill us with your Spirit now and give us an ability to understand by your Spirit uh, this word, these words and verses that we're going to study here today. Give us an anointing that is in some degree commensurate with just the beauty and the awesomeness of your word. And we pray for this as we study it, this work of your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. With these verses, and really with this chapter in its entirety, we come to the capstone of the entire prophetic portrait that is Uh, found in the Bible. When all that is around us is going to give way to a new heaven and a new earth, God's future creation of that heaven and earth, again, as we've mentioned, one of the things that will make it heaven is that it'll be a place where righteousness alone is going to uh, dwell. And this final stage of bringing all of the fallenness that was introduced into the world Uh, into mankind through the fall of Adam and Eve in that uh, ancient Garden of Eden 
with the, that has been introduced into the heavens and the earth, all of these things are going to uh, give way and be brought to an end. As we've seen, the church age represented uh, by Jesus' seven letters to the seven churches, the time that we live in now, they're going to be followed one day by what is known as the rapture of the church, which will in turn be followed by a seven-year tribulation period, which will then be followed by Jesus' second coming, which will then introduce the thousand-year reign of Christ, and at the end of that then will be the white throne judgment, and then to be followed by this capstone, this outstanding event of the creation of a new heaven and a new earth. These six end-time prophetic events that lie out uh, between the day that we live in today and that creation of a new heaven and a new earth, these aren't six kind of just disconnected events that are uh, put together here. Every one of them in exactly the order in which they're given is required to bring uh, human history to the outstanding end that God has planned for it. I think that I uh, quoted Vance Havner uh, all the way back in chapter 4 of the Revelation and uh, uh, concerning his explanation why, for why there's such scant uh, description of heaven uh, in the Scriptures and, uh, and why there isn't more information in the Bible uh, presented to us, provided to us about uh, the eternal hereafter. And he wrote, there are a lot of questions in, that the Bible doesn't answer about the hereafter. But I think one reason is illustrated by the story of a boy sitting down to a bowl of spinach when there's a chocolate cake at the end of the table. He's going to have a rough time eating that spinach when his eyes are on the cake and if the Lord had explained everything to us about what's ours to come, we'd have a rough time with our spinach uh, down here. And I think that that's as good an explanation uh, as any. Here we have, though, in this passage in Revelation, we're given what is probably the, the fullest and, and the most concentrated description of the day when uh, time is going to pass into eternity, when this temporal is going to give way to the eternal, and all of the marks of that uh, fall are going to be permanently erased from, uh, from human history. Now, there are two things that we need to understand in, uh, to, uh, going forward to be able to understand uh, this passage. First of all, this passage isn't intended to answer every single question that we might have uh, about uh, heaven or about the hereafter, and, and is as much as just to kind of prime the pump of expectation uh, in our lives as Christians for the day when this is all going to become our eternal portion. Second, it's very important to understand that when the Apostle John writes of a new heaven, he's not referring to the dwelling place uh, of God, what the Apostle Paul referred to uh, 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 in, in his letter to the church at Corinth as being the third heaven. Uh, he's referring here to the first heaven and the second heaven. And the first heaven refers to the immediate atmosphere 
that surrounds the world. Uh, the second heaven refers to what we would call uh, the universe or outer space. This is how it was understood or referred to uh, in, in the ancient uh, world. And so uh, it is that, uh, the atmosphere, uh, the earth, the heavens, the universe, outer space, uh, all of that that's one day going to give way to this new heaven and this new earth with uh, the heaven that is God is dwelling uh, in, in His dwelling place. Uh, all of this is now going to constitute one day our uh, eternal stomping grounds. Now we're told in verse 1 that God is going to create this new heaven and a new earth. This prophecy is not unique to uh, the revelation. Isaiah, uh, four, 740 some years before Jesus was ever born, wrote by the Holy Spirit in the same vein in chapter 65, For behold, God said, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. And now John, by the Holy Spirit, begins to elaborate and uh, uh, enlarge what it is that Isaiah had prophesied. Uh, this, uh, this, uh, ref the, uh, all of this creation of a new heaven and a new earth, of course, is going to require the passing away of this present heaven and, and earth, the universe that we presently occupy. You might remember that Jesus spoke of this very thing himself in his own public ministry. Matthew chapter 5, verse 18, Verily, verily, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till it is fulfilled. Mark's Gospel, chapter 13, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will by no means pass away. The Apostle Peter gives us the greatest insight into uh, how this passing away of the heaven and the earth is going to occur in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. And therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of person ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? And so, the Bible teaches that Jesus not only created uh, he, uh, the, the person within the Godhead, representing the entirety of the Godhead, that He not only created all things, but that He also maintains and sustains the universe. And in fact, the Bible teaches that He holds the entire universe uh, together. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 17, Therefore He, speaking of Jesus, is before all things, and in Him all things consist. And that word consist means to hold together. So perhaps you remember as a child uh, playing uh, with magnets, and no childhood is complete if you never played with magnets. I don't care how uh, attractive uh, phones and technology are. But one of the things you learned in playing with, with magnets is that if you had a couple of them, they had a positive and negative poles. And uh, if you ever tried to put the magnets together uh, with the matching poles, they would resist that 
uh, occurring. You couldn't do that. It was only opposite poles that would allow the two magnets uh, to come together. Scientists today, and who trusts science anymore, but scientists today candidly admit that there is this giant mystery hidden inside uh, every atom in the universe. Because within the nucleus of every atom, there is this dense knot of protons and neutrons, and without getting too technical, not for your sake, but for mine, uh, each of these, the many protons within every atom, they have a positive charge, which should cause them to repel one another, and in actuality ought to make it impossible for an atom to even exist. But there is some force scientists have no explanation for that holds every atom together. And it does so in the face of its very structure. And so scientists have dubbed this force that holds an atom together the strong force. They refer to it as the nuclear strong force, but again, they have no explanation for it at all. And Paul tells us what the force is. And it's Jesus Himself who holds all things together. And one day at the end of the age, it appears that He will release His holding together of all of the atoms that make up this fallen universe, which will then be uh, dissolved, it'll melt with a fervent heat and give way to a new heaven and a new earth, uh, untainted uh, by sin. Now, uh, for anyone that's troubled by this, uh, the death of the earth uh, is inevitable uh, anyway. So Greta Thunberg, will, I want to make sure that she's doing all right in all of this. So you have the second law of thermodynamics, and, uh, and it witnesses to the fact that the universe is not eternal. It, it, it simply isn't. It must have had a beginning. It's slowly winding down, just like a clock does. Now, they estimate that it'll wind down in 10 to the 26th power of years. So we're talking about billions and billions of years. But left to itself, ultimately, uh, the world will end uh, in a heat death uh, anyway. And so God is going to step in long before all of that happens, and He will take care of it uh, His way. Now, curiously, I think for those of us who might want to know a little bit more about the physical nature of this uh, new heaven, and specifically the new earth, we're told in verse 1 uh, that <clears throat> simply that the, the new earth will not have any seas. Now, that, that's uh, interesting to me. So there's not going to be any seashores. There's not going to be any coastlines. Uh, the entire world is finally going to be like Modesto. And, of course, that doesn't surprise us at all. We have known, uh, you know, that, that we're way ahead of the curve, and so now the whole world is going to come to realize it. Good things come to those who wait, and we just have to continue to be patient here. What's actually being communicated is that <clears throat> perhaps the earth is going to return to more like the form that it took 
at the time of the Garden of Eden prior to the fall of man and prior to uh, the flood. We're told that the earth at that time was, it was uh, watered by a mist, but there was a single great river in, in the Garden of Eden that forked out then into four rivers that then fed uh, the surrounding uh, regions. And here we need to realize that when it says no more seas, it does not mean no more water. Uh, because as we'll see later in, in chapter 22, that a, a pure river of water of life is mentioned. Well, this represents, of course, a major, major change from this present earth. Uh, fully 71% of, of the earth's surface uh, is, is covered by oceans or, or by seas. And uh, there are those who try to now spiritualize all of this as opposed to uh, taking the absence of seas literally. And they declare that in the ancient world at the time in which John writes all of this, that the Jews were never a seafaring people, and they were not. Uh, and so that the sea represented to the Jewish people in the ancient world uh, something that was fearsome, something that was uncertain to them, and thus it, it symbolizes fear and uncertainty that will not be around during the kingdom, uh, during the uh, new heaven and the new earth, or that <clears throat> in terms of the ancient world, uh, traversing the seas would mean a separation from your loved ones for a long period of time, and, and there'll be no separation like that uh, in eternity, or that the uh, restlessness and the violence of the oceans representing uh, kind of the chaotic, uh, ceaseless activity of the wicked, and all of that's going to be brought to an end in eternity. And so all of these explanations uh, away from the fact that it's to be taken uh, uh, literally. Now, all of those things that I've said are, are going to be true, uh, but we're told further in the passage that all of the things that they try to address this way uh, are, are going to be removed anyway. There's not going to be any separation. There's not going to be any fear. There's not going to be the ceaseless activity of the wicked. It's all going to be done away with. So there isn't really a need to make this statement concerning uh, no more see communicate these other things. Additionally, here in verse 1, the context of the statement of being, there being no more seas, is, it, it, the context is the physical heaven and earth. And so it's just best to understand that it's simply communicating this as a physical characteristic of the new heaven and of the new earth. Now, let me try to um, pull... Uh, deep-sea fishermen and surfers, uh, surfers away from the precipice here at this point in, in the sermon. And uh, where some people can despair about this, it's, 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 it just won't be heaven uh, if I can't fish or I can't surf. You need to remember that you're a Christian first and a deep-sea fisherman second. Now, I, I, I don't, uh, I'm less familiar with surfers uh, here in Modesto, but I know a lot of fishermen that it never does them any harm to be reminded that they are Christians first and then fishermen's uh, 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 second. But I don't, I, I, when I look at these descriptions, I don't, it, we shouldn't look at, 
at things that say, I mean, that, that not think that God is more than able to make heaven uh, more captivating, more enjoyable uh, than what he has made of this one. That uh, as much as any of us loves fishing or surfing or anything else in life, that somehow heaven is going to end up being uh, a bowl of, of spinach or, uh, uh, compared to uh, the cake that it is going to be. Now, with this, all the marks and consequences of the fall uh, of man in the Garden of Eden related to not only mankind but creation, all of that's going to be erased uh, uh, from heaven and from earth forever. It's important to remember that the earth itself, the physical earth that we live in, it is fallen as a result of the sin uh, of Adam and Eve. It's been affected by that sin. It's been defiled. Uh, it needs to be, in the words of the Apostle Paul, freed from its futility, to be freed from uh, its groaning as well, and the new heaven and the new earth is going to accomplish that. Romans chapter 8, verse 19, Paul said, For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until uh, now. Now before we leave this, there, uh, there are a lot of people that try to fill in the blanks of, of this very kind of spare description of the new heaven and the new earth and involving no more uh, sea. And I'm, I'm as, as shrouded in, in uh, the darkness related to the mystery of it as anyone else is. But one of the things that this mention of the fact that there's no more sea uh, for the student of the Bible is it clearly differentiates uh, this eternity, this new heaven and the new earth from the millennium. And there's a lot of people that get the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ, and this e new heaven and new earth all mixed up uh, in their study of end times. In the millennium, there will be seas. In fact, Ezekiel tells us, I think it's chapter 47, as this great river of water flows uh, from uh, the temple and flows forth, a part of, of this stream of water will go down to the Dead Sea and give it life. Part of it will then go to the Great Sea, the Mediterranean Sea. And so it, it clearly on that level informs us that there are two entirely different things. And the New Jerusalem is described for us in verse 2, and his attention as he's looking at all of this, this giving away of the old to the new, and then his attention is drawn to a specific feature of the new heavens and the new earth, and that is a new Jerusalem, which is going to be uh, its capital city. And so John saw it come down from heaven prepared uh, as a bride adorned for her husband, is how uh, he puts it. In other words, it, is, it was in his mind as he looked at it as beautiful and as beautifully adorned as a bride on her wedding day. So he sees this, 
He's trying to put into words how to describe just the uh, unforgettable beauty of the new heavens and the new earth, and his mind went to a bride on her wedding day. The fact of the matter is, is that uh, uh, a man may see many beautiful things in life, uh, but what will surpass all of those things in terms of pure beauty will be to view his bride on uh, their wedding day coming down the aisle. And if ever, anybody's ever been in that place, you understand it exactly. Uh, you disappear. Uh, the room disappears. Everybody else in the room uh, disappears. And it's all about her and all of her beauty on that day. And it's John's way of saying that the new Jerusalem is going to be unforgettably uh, beautiful. And with this, the... Uh, city of Jerusalem itself is given a fresh start. In the Old Testament, it was the site of so much idolatry on the part of uh, the Jewish people who were so wayward most of the time uh, in their uh, pursuit of, uh, of God and, uh, and, and all of the, the idolatry that was involved in that, all of the rebelliousness of God's people. Of course, Jerusalem was the site of Jesus' beatings, uh, of His crucifixion. The Jerusalem will uh, incur a terrible defilement during the tribulation period in which the Jews themselves will uh, rebuild the temple there contrary to God's plan. And, uh, and they, uh, they will uh, be seduced by uh, the Antichrist. And then Jerusalem is going to become the center of the worship of the Antichrist during the second half of the tribulation period. And, uh, and to such a degree, during that tribulation period, Jerusalem is defiled that God refers to uh, it as Sodom and as Egypt. And... Uh, at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ, uh, the uh, uh, Christians are going to be besieged within the city as Satan leads this great uh, rebellious people in an attack upon uh, God's people. And, uh, and all of it, all of the history of Jerusalem, everything about it is going to be overwhelmed by God. She's going to become known, as is told us here in the passage, as the holy city. She will forever be separated from anything like that occurring in her ever again. I do like happy endings. There aren't enough of them in life. And, uh, and so everything is headed toward a very, very uh, happy ending. The description of the new heaven and the new earth continues here in verses 3 through 8. We're told in verse 3, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He shall dwell with them, and they shall be His people. God Himself will be with them and be their God. In the Old Testament, there's a reference to a tabernacle here. In the Old Testament, when God instructed the children of Israel uh, to construct a, a, a tabernacle as a part of uh, their worship of Him under that uh, that old covenant, that tabernacle was referred to as the tent of meeting uh, because it represented uh, the presence of God. It represented the single great place to meet with God and to worship God in all of, uh, of the world. 
Now, but in eternity, we're told here, we're going to come to enjoy a new intimacy with God that we've never known before. No matter how well any of us knows God, no matter how um, close we are to Him in prayer and in worship, uh, all of it is going to pale in comparison to the intimacy that we'll have with God at that time. No, no, we won't be relating to Him or trying to understand Him uh, through Old Testament types or uh, Old Testament uh, shadows. Our prayers to Him are n never again going to be offered in faith uh, as we uh, offer them up and then and then with, with the confidence, but then with the hope that He is uh, heeding them, we, we will talk to Him in His very presence. And we'll never again, and this will be wonderful, we'll never again, as Brother A Andrew, Andrew wrote in, in his book, we're never again going to have to practice the presence of God. Where we, in this life, we have to continually remind ourselves of the presence of God. That will be over with at that time. We will be very, very conscious of, of His presence, and, uh, and it'll be apparent. There won't be any more temptation, no more sin, no more guilt uh, to affect or to threaten our relationship or our communion with, with God. In verse 4, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, no more pain, for the former things have passed away. A very famous verse um, in, in the uh, Revelation. All of those things were introduced into the human condition uh, at the fall of Adam and Eve in that, that Garden of Eden. But now they're going to be forever banished from this new heaven and this new earth. Imagine no more death, no more funerals, no more cancer, no more illness, no more war, none of it. I say just good riddance. Uh, sometimes you'll uh, watch an NBA game or something like that, and when the home team or whoever is, uh, the home team is winning and they've got the game in hand or something, the audience will begin uh, to sing na 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 hey you know goodbye and so with death good riddance to it it'll it will be gone forever in human history what a terrible thing uh, death is what a terrible terrible part of the curse there'll be no more sorrow uh, you and I will never experience that emotion ever again think about that we will never experience that again. And uh, it, it all gone. No more crying. There's not going to be any more pain. And imagine uh, what that will be like. No more tears. God's going to wipe every tear from our eyes. If you've ever seen uh, someone wipe a tear away from another person's eye or watch a mother do that, to a child. It's one of the most tender things you'll ever see in the course uh, of, uh, of your life. And Jesus is going to do that one day uh, for us. There's not going to be any regret in heaven concerning our past. 
uh, life at all. No one's going to shed another tear here. It's not communicating that we're going to cry all the way through uh, eternity and Jesus is going to be there to wipe our tears. It's saying, declaring here that every cause for sorrow in our life, every cause for tears is going to, be, is going to cease. And so there's that no more, no more. And part of what will make heaven heaven is not just what's going to be there, uh, but what is not going to be there uh, at that time. Notice in verse 5 that from His throne, the Lord is going to usher all of this into existence with the declaration, Behold, I make all things new. And then in, in verses 5 and 6, uh, uh, the Father instructs John to record all of this because apparently he's so in awe over what it is that he's seeing and hearing that he has ceased to, uh, to write. And uh, so uh, he assures us here uh, uh, that all of this is going to happen uh, and uh, it is going to be a part of our future. I think that the Lord, at this point in the entire account, as we read about these things and as they aren't merely words on a page for us, but we take a walk with them. No more death. No more tears. No more, no more of all of these things that are listed here. And to realize that that reality is coming, that a person can almost feel like this is too good to be true. And so God here, He speaks and He declares, I will make, I make all things uh, new. And for John to write these words because God declares Himself to be faithful and true, that all of it is going to happen exactly as God has declared uh, that it will. And it will happen based upon the fact that He is Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, first and last letters of the al Greek alphabet, and communicating that His absolute sovereignty over all of creation. Uh, he brought all of creation into existence, and, and He alone is going to de determine its, its final form. He says in verse 6, I will give of the fountain of water of life freely to him who uh, thirsts. And here, he's, here he is, all the way through the revelation, we see God um, reaching out to the person who still isn't saved. And here you have the person that's unsaved, whether from the time of John all the way till the time of the white throne judgment. During the tribulation period, today, in this room today, where there is someone that is unsaved and reading thus far in the book of Revelation, and, and God at this point uh, extends the invitation uh, to them that if a person will come to Him, he will give of the fountain of water freely to him who thirsts. And this water, living water, it, it refers to uh, the ministry of the Holy Spirit uh, in a person's life, being born again by the Spirit, and then living in the power uh, of the Holy Spirit. And then he moves in verse 7 to an encouragement to the overcomer. And uh, remember the, and I think we'll probably end 
this series in Revelation probably ended on uh, the day of prayer for the persecuted church uh, coming up in two or three weeks. And it's always good for us to, to be reminded of the fact that this, this uh, revelation is not just to Americans, uh, Christians, in the year 2022, but to Christians through all of the ages when they face persecutions that we, we, could, we, we have never known in this nation. Uh, and then Christians all around the world today uh, where we look at this and we say, well, this will be nice when it happens, but I'm going to Costco after the service. <laughs> I mean, we've got all of these distractions, all of these things. This will just be icing on the cake of what is uh, life in America. And, but for much of the Christian, Christians in history and in the world today, this is the lone hope. There is no hope for change there is no hope for advancement. Every day is a struggle there, not only as a human being in those nations, but as being Christians in those, in those nations. And so here is this encouragement to the overcomer that needs that encouragement and in the midst of all of the persecution and the rejection and, and the marginalization that goes on in the world uh, against the Christian and even imprisonment as John was experiencing uh, here, uh, that all of this is going to happen in, and the encouragement to remain faithful to God because it's all coming our way. And then finally, in verse 8, John lists the characteristics of those who will not have a place uh, in, in the hereafter, will not have a place in heaven. They're going to be excluded and he says that their eternal portion will be in uh, Gehenna. So somehow in this creation of the new heaven and the new earth, uh, Gehenna is going to continue to exist. We're given no revelation uh, related to that, but clearly uh, it does. And the reason that they're not allowed these, uh, this listing of, of the people, as he lists there the cowardly, the unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, the reason they can't be allowed into heaven is they would ruin it if they were allowed. Heaven would just cease to be uh, heaven. And so it's the absence of these sins and the absence of those who are committed to these sins and uh, that will make heaven the blessing that it will be. It, 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 along with all of the other things that we've studied here this morning. And so those who have refused to confess their sin, to repent of them, to trust in Christ for forgiveness of those sins, uh, they will not uh, be a part uh, of this new heaven and a new earth. And again, I've mentioned uh, previously a number of times, sin has ruined uh, the world. And God is not going to allow it to, to ruin heaven. And this is John's way of saying that very same thing. There's a couple of comments that are required related to the sins that are listed here. When he talks about the cowardly, he's not talking about any of us who might be naturally timid or we run away from fights or these kind of things in our lifetime. Uh, it, it's talking about those 
who are afraid to come to Jesus out of fear, like Pilate, um, who was more concerned about the applause of men, how people would uh, uh, view him holding on to his position, and, uh, and, and they're willing to reject Christ in order to have the world's applause and admiration. When it talks about the unbelieving, it's talking about those who have spent their entire life resisting, being unbelieving toward, uh, toward Jesus Christ uh, uh, for their salvation. The abominable speaks of sins that are uh, considered an abomination by God. Murderers are self-explanatory. In the new heaven and the new earth, nobody is going to say to themselves, you know, I wish we had a few murders to liven things up around here. There's not even going to be a hint uh, of that at all. Sexually immoral, uh, excluded sorcerers, and this speaks of those who practice the occult, and including the use of mind-altering drugs in order to uh, uh, get to a higher consciousness, altered state of, of consciousness, and so in the new heavens and the new earth, uh, no one is going to think to themselves, uh, what I wouldn't give for a little peyote and uh, a good seance uh, right about now. And a, and a nice cigarette. Uh, and there's not going to be any of that. So there's not going to be any heroin epidemics. There's not going to be any fentanyl epidemics. There's not going to be any of this kind of, of thing that troubles uh, our, our society, our world, uh, individuals as well. Uh, idolaters, those who choose the worship of the creation over the Creator, it is to, uh, an idolater is one who worships anything in the world other than uh, God and then all liars. I don't think that this list is meant to be exhaustive. It's just listing enough sins uh, here to make us uh, drive home this point. Uh, that sin and those who uh, choose to reject Christ in order to commit them, they're not going to have any part in the new heaven and the new earth. So we'll look to finish this description of the new heavens and the, and the new earth um, uh, next time. And, that, and the description goes all the way through the first five verses of, of chapter 22. And so there's no harm in really taking a couple weeks to examine what it is that we're go is going to be uh, a part of our lives for eternity. When we went through looking at the millennial kingdom, uh, that was kind of taxing for people, uh, a lot of people in listening to that. And, uh, uh, but in, in my mind, in teaching on it, is that if we're going to spend a thousand years there, um, a 50-minute preparation for it from the Bible doesn't seem like an undue amount of time, no matter how dense the content is. And it's the same thing related to heaven. These things are intended to be known and to be intended to be a part of our hope related uh, to the future. So maybe you came to church today and, and as a Christian, uh, just in need of good news, well, here you have good news. All's well that ends well. And just the reassurance that your life and the path that you're on, it ends very, very well indeed. And that's very good to hear. 
If you sit here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, the life that God wants for you, the plans that He has for you, uh, for the rest of this life and for all of the life to come are beyond anything that you could dream or think about. And He loves you so much and, and He wants to bring that into your life. But first, you have to confess that you're a sinner to God and you have to repent of your sin and then put your trust for the forgiveness of your sin uh, in Jesus Christ. And in that moment that you do that, you will place your life on an entirely different path that leads to an entirely different destination and, and experiences an entirely different quality of life, not just in, in, in eternity, but in this life as well. And if you have never trusted in Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins in order to begin a relationship with God, the thing you've been created for. There'll be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service, and they'd love to pray with you to begin that relationship this morning. If you need prayer for any need in your life this morning, they'd love to pray with you and for you as well. Let's stand together now, and we'll close in prayer. Well, Father, again, we uh, come to the a place that we come to often in the Revelation, and that is the realization that you have thought of everything. Uh, the fall of man, the sin of man, Adam and Eve in that ancient Garden of Eden, the terrible, terrible consequences of that, and, and in in, the, in human beings, in mankind as a whole, in our lives individually, but then out into the creation as well. And here you have this plan to undo all of it. Lord, I don't know that anybody in this whole world has even thought through the dilemma of our condition, let alone identifying the cause of it and then providing a solution. But you do. We're glad you do, Lord. And we're glad to be a part of that solution. And that one day this will be our eternal portion. What peace it gives us as we face all of the things that we face in life without having to worry or to think about these things, but to think about our future with great anticipation, expectation, and with joy. Thank you, Lord, for being our God. Thank you for your salvation. And thank you so much for our Savior. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.